This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. God of all history and all truth, thank you for the Bible. Through your word, we learn that you love your people dearly and that we are your people. And we thank you that your word shapes who we are. Thank you that your word gives us hope for the future. As your word is preached and heard now, we ask you to send your spirit so that we can know our role in your world and in your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, people say that Team sports are a really good thing, right? They build character and all of that good stuff. And I guess that's true. I was never really good at team sports. Hand-eye coordination wasn't exactly my forte. But, but one-on-one combat, I've, I've always thought that was pretty cool. Not that I'm a combatant, but, you know, when it, gets, it gets really epic when it's just one-on-one, and, you know, especially when they're representatives of their nations, you know, and they, they're not just fighting for themselves, they're fighting for, you know, their whole people. Stories capture this, movies capture this, there's a great scene in, there's several scenes in Dune like this, but, but, but in, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series, the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis has one, I guess it's, it's Prince Caspian, where there's the evil king, and then, and then Peter comes back, you know, to Narnia, and he's got to remember what it's, you know, what it's like being king. And they battle on behalf of the forces of good and evil. And they're all gathered around watching them. Like, the stakes are super high, right? We, we, we really love that kind of thing. David and Goliath is a great example, right? I mean, Goliath is this big guy, and he goes out, and he doesn't just want to fight. He says, you know what? I'll, I'll sweeten the deal. Anyone who beats me will all, will all follow you. It's like, oh, man. Everything's riding on this. Those are the kind of combats that we like. Early in the Gospel of Luke... We come to such a combat between Satan and Jesus. These are the representatives of the two sides, and it is an ultimate battle. You know, we don't, Luke doesn't do a lot to say that directly, and it's pretty early in the story. And we know that the battle is is finished on the cross, and that's where we put our, rightly, put most of our attention when Jesus accomplished redemption and defeated death once for all, and, and defeated the devil. But here, he gives a decisive indication of how it's all going to go. This is the kind of ultimate mono e mano hand-to-hand mortal combat. And it's fairly understated for, for that. We've just come out of chapter 3, where Jesus has been prepared by John the Baptist his, John the Baptist has prepared the way. Jesus got baptized. And then we get this genealogy, right? The real juicy stuff. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a great ramp up to an epic combat. It actually is. It winds down, it, you know, it goes all the way back, showing Jesus' genealogy, all the way back to the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And from there, He's led into the wilderness. That's a really important cue for us because it takes us all the way back to the very beginning when there was another epic mano-a-mano battle between Satan 
and our first representative, Adam. And that went terribly. The stakes here are even higher, but it's a rematch, basically. It's humanity versus the devil one more time, and how's it going to go? So actually, readers would be on the edge of their seat realizing that, oh, we're going back to that. We're going back to which direction is humanity going to take? And Jesus came to start a new humanity and to point them in a new direction. There's a lot of parallels with the Garden of Eden and Adam here. Adam was one man, and Jesus one man. Adam was in a garden. Jesus is in a wilderness. Adam had food of every sort and every comfort, and Jesus fasts for 40 days. So again, it, there's a ramping up of comparison that this is like the most epic battle that there is. How do we get here? Satan doesn't spring out of the bushes and attack Jesus. This is not a surprise attack. Jesus doesn't pick the fight and say, hey, I've just been baptized. Who, who wants a piece of this? Right? How does it happen? Let's look. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So this is God, the Holy Spirit, who picks this fight, and he leads Jesus into the wilderness to test him. God does test his people. And that's, I think, a possibly uncomfortable thought for many of us. But it's unavoidable. There are tests throughout Scripture. Abraham was tested, like majorly tested, in a way that is really weird. (laughs) I hadn't thought of mentioning this. It's in a way that today would make us really uncomfortable if not feel like it's traumatic and abusive, right? Okay, he leads his son on this multi-day hike and takes him up a mountain, you know, with the wood and then ties him up and lays him and puts a knife to his throat and then stops. (laughs) Everything's fine now. And that's very strange. And in my earlier days as a father, I thought it would be really great to, you know, lightly act this out. Holly's faces in our hands. And so we did in our yard. And there was a garage between us and the street. But as we were doing this, Holly was getting more and more nervous. Like, Eli, Eli, like, we're getting, like, cops called on us. If anyone sees what we're doing back here. And I was like, and Jesh was, you know, so cooperative. Anyway, I also, you know, the Lord stayed my hand. So it's not. (laughs) Abraham was led to that test. He was commanded to do it. In no uncertain terms. It can be confusing. Why would God do this? When it comes to understanding who God is and how he works, sometimes the way I like to think about it, or I have to think, we, we have to hold truths of God altogether. And sometimes we look at the negative space. In, in other words, no one has ever seen God. Scripture says we can't know God unless he shows himself to us. And he's shown himself to us all that we need to know for life and salvation, but we don't see everything. We can't see everything. And so we hold these pillars here and this pillar here, and, and we're not necessarily sure how they go together. Often there's a mystery in the, in the midst of it, like, a, you know, like the singularity in the middle of a black hole, having just watched Interstellar. You can't look at the thing itself. You can see what's around it and know what you need to know about it. And sometimes it's a little bit like that with God. He is ultimately inscrutable, which is a great word. Like, he can't be scrutinized. He can't be known. We can't overcome him with knowledge. But he wants us to know him. 
So when it comes to God leading Jesus into temptation, we need to hold some things together because God also leads us into tests and even into temptation. The first thing we hold on to is God is not the author of evil. Scripture is abundantly clear on this. God did not create evil. God does not do evil. And, and real sharp ones among us, we say, in there Isaiah or something where it says, I create good and evil? And we can look into that and see a better word is calamity, that God brings judgment, and you know, sort of, a, a, in, in a sense, an evil on a, a, a people, certainly as a judgment or in his plan. But that is not the same as authoring evil. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's from 1 John. He's the father of lights. In him, there's no variation or change due to shadow. God doesn't change. He is all good. And everything he made is good. After he created everything, he looked at everything he made. He said, it is very good. He didn't make anything bad. He didn't make anything evil. God is not tempted, and nor does he tempt. He's not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So James tells us when one is tempted, let no one say, I'm being tempted by God. He cannot tempt and is not tempted himself. He doesn't delight in wickedness. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Psalm 5.4. Hebrews says he doesn't lie. 1 Corinthians, he's not the author of confusion. So whatever we know about God, we know he does not love evil. He doesn't play with us. He doesn't toy around with evil. It's not of him. It's not from him. Furthermore, God cares about us. He cares about our pain. He doesn't inflict us, inflict on us discomfort or trial lightly, as if it's no thing to him. He's not one of the Greek gods who sees people as their playthings and tosses them around. Uh, Psalm 56, 8 says, poetically, you have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in a bottle. That's very intimate knowledge of our hardships. Counted my tossings. I can't even... <laughs> eat. Sometimes at night, I feel like they're uncountable with the children coming and goes... <laughs> But even God even knows those. And, and, you know, to count our tears, furthermore, he will wipe away every tear promised in Isaiah and in Revelation. Yet over all this, God is absolutely categorically sovereign. Nothing can happen apart from God. And here we have this mystery in between these facts that we know, these pillars that we are holding on to. Nothing can happen apart from his will. We have to hold the mystery. And it might be helpful. We can come up with, you know, nuanced terms like God's decretal will versus God's permissive will. You know, what he decrees and says, do this, and other things he allows. And uh, that's a faithful formulation. That's faithful to Scripture. That's, but it's, frankly, it's not wholly satisfying. It's like, okay, I'm putting words on it, but I don't think I totally get it. Or the kind of the other end of the spectrum, you know, more, I don't know, rustic, if you will, like the bumper sticker in the States, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Anyone see that? I held back my heavy accent for that. That's also faithful to Scripture, but maybe less satisfying. Point is that we can try to make sense of these things and ought and must, but at the end of the day, we can't go outside of what Scripture said. God loves us. He's good, absolutely. And here he leads Jesus into the wilderness. Why on earth would God do that? He leads Jesus directly into temptation. It's interesting that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus 
prays, teaches us to pray, Father, lead us not into temptation. Well, first of all, first of all, why would we pray that if it weren't were not a possibility? You know what I'm saying? It's sort of a weird thing. If you say, "Wow, am I is I'm asking God not to do that?" That means that He could or He might. And I think Jesus is simply saying, "If you want, if you can avoid this, you want to." Like the test is not easy; it is difficult and painful, but we're safe with God. We pray, "Don't lead me into temptation." But when He does, and He Scripture promises that He does in Hebrews, it calls it discipline. It says discipline is not pleasant; it's painful at the time, but it's evidence that God is treating us as sons, as children in His family. No father leaves his beloved child undisciplined. This is from Hebrews twelve. So we have to not grow weary. We have to not get discouraged, and we have to be careful not to impugn God and turn it back on him and blame him as if he's doing something wrong. When we're tested, what comes out of our hearts? If it's, well, my God would never let that happen to me, well, we have to check that with Scripture, because actually God might. And if that's not your God, you may not have the God of Scripture. So we're not given the option just to say, well, God would never do that to me. I'm, I'm too, I'm, we're so close. We're, like, really close. It's just God wouldn't do that with me. We're like, yeah, but no one's closer than Jesus. And Jesus is our example in this. God led Jesus not only into the wilderness, but into trial after trial after trial unto death. Are we above our Lord? We're not. We're not above him. The teacher is not above, the student is not above the teacher, nor the servant above the master. So we hang on to the things that we definitely do know. God is sovereign and he's good. All things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. We have to hang on to that when we're in the midst of it. And when we see other people going through trials and say, I'm not here to explain it. I'm not here to defend God and say why and to tie everything up in a bow. And we have to resist the, the, the impulse to try to justify God's actions in a sense by saying, oh, the reason that happened was this. Because it doesn't always tally up like that. It can. We can see sometimes God did this really hard thing, and wow, look at this fruit, but we don't always see that. Anyone who's been through suffering knows that. that doesn't, we don't have a, a balance sheet with hard things in life. We're not meant to. We're meant to trust and know that God will work this out. Let me just stay with him. And this is the essence of the temptations to Jesus. It's to try to get around, shortcut, fiddle with what God is doing and just squirm out of it one way or another in ways that we'll look at that are great ways, really good options on the surface. But the essence of it is just, I don't want, God, I don't want what God is giving. And I'm going to use whatever means I can to, to find a way out. <laughs> God is making us into the image of Christ. And one of the images, one of the very common images in Scripture is that of refining gold, you know, like boiling metal so that anything less molecularly stable is going to be incinerated. Ah, yes. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So those aren't the things that we love to experience, but those are the things God has promised, and, and he's put it very clearly, squarely in our laps as this is, this, is my, this, is love, this is my love for you. You will be made like I'm drawing you closer, and there will be trial along the way, but do not lose heart. I am with you. All right. And I just, I, I have a little kind of sub point on this. I, I just, 
think that there can be a, a very understandable impulse to feel that I'm closest to God when I'm, when I'm thriving, when I'm in the midst of, you know, when, when the face-melting guitar riff and the worship service is just like washing over me and, or, you know, and when I'm, when I'm doing my kind of yoga-inspired Bible app that helps me to center and, be, and breathe deeply, that's where I'm supposed to be all the time. And I make fun of those because I, too, like the guitar riffs, and I also use apps that help me take deep breaths and center, and those are good things. But it's just the opposite. In Scripture, we are often found closest to God in the hardest place. And our feelings are not a measure of that. And so we're often more like Christ in our hardest moment than any other place. So where I want to take us with this is that we, when we face Trials and temptations. Have you trials and temptations? Is there struggle? Any is there struggle? Any? We should never be discouraged, right? Take it to the Lord in prayer. You guys know this hymn, right? Okay. People are looking like. Have you? Yeah. It's so. It's so easy to sing it. Trials and temptations. You sh- we should never be discouraged. I really like that line because that's really the essence of, of, of what we're getting out of this is we should not be discouraged when we're tempted and when there are trials. We should take heart. We need to take heart. We need to take courage and confidence knowing these things that there is ultimately every good. there's good in every ill. It's... One of these lessons that I think as you go through life and experience more trial and kind of weather more of the ills of life, it feels like, oh, yeah, that was sort of a kind of a nice, that was sort of like a, a greeting card sentiment from my young days as a Christian. Like, everything's, but, but the, the longer you live, do you realize it's really messy out there? And we get sort of like wizened and salty. And Fie on that. <laughs> That's just not the attitude of God. Fie. Sorry, I was going to say poo, but I didn't want to say that. It's not the attitude of God to, to, that we get kind of crotchety and, and sort of jaded, you know? We have, to, we have to resist that because the truth is evergreen. It's ever true. It's not a platitude that all things work together for good. Now, I hasten to say that this doesn't mean that Christians are idiots about human suffering. And sometimes we, sometimes Christians act like idiots around human suffering. Like, like, as soon as there's a whiff of suffering, we like, hey, like, wham, like the Bible verse, everything's good, you know, and just like can't even take a minute of it. Just like, we are very happy. Like we were not, and they're, yeah. To quote another hymn, now I am happy all the day. I want to, like, throw a grenade at that hymn when we sing it. (laughs) No offense to Fanny Crosby, but it doesn't mean we don't mourn or don't grieve or cry or struggle or have questions or get really angry about injustice or other things. It doesn't mean we never complain. Philippians 2 says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. And yet... We have an entire 
Psalter, the songbook of the redeemed, which is loaded with complaints. It uses the word complain all the time. Here I'm complaining to God, but what the Psalms do, and what Philippians is warning against, is complaining in a sinful way. It's like I can bring a grievance to my wife in different ways, and I can just blast in there and fire off a bunch of accusations and state my grievance, and it would be really hard for her to receive that. But what I'm doing is I'm being dishonest. My emotions are cloud, and I'm not, saying, I'm not acknowledging what is true, right? And the more successful way, both relationally and for integrity, is, to, is that I've thought about it, I've acknowledged how thankful I am for her and the good things and my fault in it, and then we can talk about the actual problem. It's not that we can't bring our emotions to God, but if we come with guns blazing, we, are, we, we run the risk of blaspheming God, of blaming him, and, and the Psalms teach us how to deal with and how to bring our stuff to God, because we got to bring it to him. And the Psalms just help us. And this is how you're going to complain. So we even complain, just in a way that puts God at the center and not me. In the face of suffering, Christians sorrow just like everybody else. But we take heart. We don't ever lose hope. That is a distinction, and that is something unique to Christian suffering. Jesus suffered here. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We have to, we have to resist the fallacy that he didn't actually experience this as suffering, right? Like that he was drawing on his divinity, you know, kind of like dipping into the divinity nature. So so we come face to face with the incarnation of God, which is impossible, in an eternal, everlasting being put into finite mortal flesh. And he did. And the whole point was so that he could go through what we go through as a person, not as a person with, like, divine jetpacks on, right? Like, oh, I don't really touch the ground, his divinity and humanity are at interplay, but in his sufferings, he suffered as a human. And he's full of the Holy Spirit the same way we are meant to be full of the Holy Spirit. So everything he does here is not different from what we would do. He just did it perfectly because he's the new Adam. And he came to lay waste to Satan and his kingdom. Okay. Yeah. In other words, it wasn't just a show and kind of a teaching tool. He actually suffered for 40 days, and I guess... In Matthew and Mark, when you read this, the language is clear that the temptations that Satan gave him were going on for 40 days. And at the end of this, it says, when Satan had finished every temptation, the devil ended every temptation. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. Every way. So I don't know if that means Satan only has 40 days worth of temptations, or I don't think that's the point. But Jesus suffered everything that we suffered here and, and beyond. So it's real suffering. And it's not that he just kind of wafted through it and, and just you know, ran through his Bible flashcards. Okay. So let's look at the temptations in particular and find out how it is that we can just kind of draw hope in the midst of these. We'll just look at each of them briefly and, and then wrap up. The first temptation, don't be thrown off. They're in different orders in Matthew and Mark than they are in Luke. I don't think the point is chronology. I just want to get that out of the way. So the first temptation 
is if you are the son of God, man, if you are the son of God, eat up. If you're the son of God, would you, what kind of, your God would let his own son know? If you're really his son, you should be well-fed. So what we have here is this multi-layered package. It seems like it's about Jesus' identity, right? If you're the son of God, if you really are, and, he's, and, and it sounds like he's saying, act like it, man. He's also saying, take hold of your identity, right? You can do this if you're, you should, right? Okay, but this is actually... I think identity is a little bit secondary. The chapter four, verse chapter three, verse twenty-two. We just had God say, "What?" Like the sky opened in the most cartoon fashion, and like a voice comes out, right? And and it says, "You are my beloved son." We take a breath, and Satan says, "If you are God's son," Satan is attacking God's word. He's not first attacking, who are you, Jesus? It's, Jesus, what do you think about what God just said? Which is exactly what he did in the garden. And it's exactly what he does with us all the time. Part of the lie is that he's attacking us and that we have to defend ourselves. And he's, he's attacking, we have to be strong and we have to be noble and we have to be clean and right. That's part of the, the deception, the temptation, if Jesus bit it, was, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, I am God's son. Foosh. And suddenly he becomes a disobedient son. All Jesus has to do is go back to what God said and stay with it and rest on it. And that's what he does. That's basically the essence of this, that Satan is right after God says it, just like in the garden, you will not. He comes in and questions what God said. Is that making sense, the slight difference? It's not about who you are. It's about who God says you are. Do you believe that? Or are you going to go with your human logic? And the human logic is so convincing here. Every one of these, you just can just, yeah. And, you know, more than I think about it, why would I be? And why would God? And all of a sudden, we have all of these presuppositions about God, right? We, we, we've saying, surely God wouldn't. Surely Surely based on what? What does it mean to be the beloved of God? We have to ask this about ourselves too. This brings us right back to the point of struggle and suffering and pain. What if we come into depression? What if, we're, what if things go badly with our families and our jobs? What kind of God is this? Surely God wouldn't let this happen to me. Now, caveat, Proverbs teaches us, Paul teaches us, you can suffer for doing wrong. You can suffer for, again, being an idiot. That's just its own self-contained thing. You do something idiotic, you go to, that's, you know, God's with you, but that from sin there is suffering. But from God, when you're walking with God, what Satan wants us to do is to question, what Satan wants Jesus to do is question God's word and take a shortcut to what should be the result. Because, yes, a good father takes care of his son. Yes, he doesn't want him to stay. He's right but he wants him to just take a shortcut. You know what? This doesn't really tally up, so just use your own means and get what you know you should have instead of what God has given you. Temptation 2 is very similar. Bow down, just a real simple shortcut, just, just bow down to me, and he, see these kingdoms? 
He shows them all the kingdom of the world in a moment. All the glory is yours, which is right. So the first one's as a son, right? He's, he's testing him as a son. The second one's as a Messiah. Messiah deserves the glory of all the nations. It's promised. It's actually written here. So where is it? Well, lucky for you, we have a special today. One quick bloop, and it's all yours. Now, of course, Satan can't actually deliver on that because he's only, I don't know the word, temporarily, marginally, partially, imperfectly ruler of the world. He is on his way out, and Jesus was here to do that. But this is the temptation of shortcut to, to these results. Let's just get to what you're supposed to be doing as Messiah. In fact, if we work together, we can get it done like yesterday. Give me your hand. Join with me. This is the Darth Vader temptation. You know, like, Luke, take my hand and take it, you know, and we will rule the galaxy. And he's, no, I'll never, I will never, what does he say, join you. Then you shall die. <laughs> That's basically how Satan is. It's like, yeah, we can do this, and I'll make it real easy for you. Bargain with the devil, I'll make it real easy for you. It happens. You can do it. You can walk along with Satan, and in the short term, it's going great. A lot of ministries go great, built on satanic theology. For a while, they go great. It's a shortcut to the results. God is never more interested in results than he is in process. He just wants us to stay with him, you know? He cares about results. It's not like, you know, the journey is the destination. It's, there is a destination. God is bringing his kingdom, but he's doing it his way, in his timing, and our job is to stay with him, to trust what he has said, and to stay with him. Anytime it smacks of shortcut, because what Satan's really offering Jesus here is a shortcut from the cross. You know what's coming as well as I do. Do we really have to go through all that? It's gory and da da da. Let's just get to the good stuff. This is what some people call an overrealized eschatology. It's yes, heaven is coming, the end is coming, and we're so excited. We want it now. We're going to demand it now. We will reach up and pull Jesus down now. And we're going to teach and live and act in a way as if all the good stuff is here now already and talk that way, and we're just not going to have time for the cross. Guys, we are on this side of that. We are on this side of the cross. A theology of glory is coming, but we're still in the midst of the theology of the cross. They both go together. But we're not done with it. We need to be patient. The, the end is not more important than the means. Or as, as we've learned in our family devotion, the right thing done the wrong way is the wrong thing. And the wrong thing done the right way doesn't exist. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Rora. I will pay you in bouillon after beef bouillon. All right, temptation number three. So the, so the bread, then bow down. Third one is, it's great. You just love it. You know, he, Satan comes and, and quotes Scripture himself. He takes him to the pinnacle of the, of the temple, and the temple's on this cliff over the Kidron Valley, as the historian, the J guy, the old historian Josephus described it. And so it's like there's the top of the, of the, of the thing, words, temple, which is probably, I don't know, 90 and then there's a sheer cliff right off it. So this is a total death, you know, leap. And if you do it, dude, if you, like, hit that jump and land it, everyone will love you. 
That's basically what he's saying. You know, like the guy skiing or at the skate park, like, <laughs> I'll probably die, but if I hit it. So that's what he's saying. Like, this will secure your reputation with people like nothing else. Oh, you're the guy who survived the cliff jump? That was sick. Also, it will make you so confident of your relationship with God because God and I are so close now because I jumped off the cliff and I totally didn't die. So that is the, it's a shortcut to an assurance or to, yeah, confidence with God. Because this right now is really lame, being in the desert, not having eaten. And I'm supposed to be, you know, in this ministry. I have this faith. And Satan says, oh, yeah? Show me. Well, mm, who's God now? Satan is. God, I need you to perform for me. So he, and now suddenly I'm serving someone else. And all of these, the idolatry, the idol is created in an instant, just in a moment. And it looks on the outside like, oh, I'm trusting God. But in fact, you're subjecting God. It looks like, oh, I'm acting like a son. But you're rejecting sonship by reaching for the, the provision. And, oh, I'm acting like a Messiah because I'm getting all the glory. You have defied what it means to be Messiah. So Jesus sees all these, and he resists them. He resists the shortcuts victoriously, and Satan leaves him. And he enters into his ministry in the power of the Spirit. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. To Galilee, and a report went about him throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. We could spend a long time on how he defeated Satan, quoting Bible verses. They're all from Deuteronomy. You don't only have to use Deuteronomy. You can use any part of the Bible. It's all good. But I'm just going to make the connection more briefly by pointing out when Jesus comes out in the power of the Spirit, and he's coming, and he, as we know, he starts casting out demons and demonstrating his, his power and validating his messiahship and bringing a foretaste of the freedom and the liberty and the healing of the kingdom, which is coming, and which we still get foretastes of. But what does he say he does in the power of the Spirit in verse 15? What is, what's the verb? If anyone has a Bible and you already have it open, I want to hear it. He taught. So having just destroyed Satan at the universe's ultimate mono-e-mono competition, he then goes out and teaches in the power of the Spirit. And what I want to draw from this is simply that the means that Jesus used are the means that we use, and they're available to us. It is the Word of God. It is knowing, remembering, and using, living by the Word of God. It hasn't changed. It's not some dazzling new method. Victory over Satan. We, and, and, and he did this for us. He, val- he validated his own ministry, started his own ministry as Messiah, and he did it on our behalf. So say in Christ, when we trust in Christ, this victory is given to us. We have the victory over Satan, and it is, as we know, finalized at the cross. We walk in this victory. But the temptation is going to be, as always, show me your strength. Show me how awesome you are. That's, that's the temptation. Satan, I hope I'm making these connect. That's the temptation Satan gave to Jesus is, oh, if you're so this, if you're the Messiah. And he says, God has said this, and that's all I need. 
And so he goes about teaching. What has God really said? What is really happening? Here comes the kingdom. It's in me. We have confidence to face temptations, not because we're all that. We are weak and frail, and we often stumble. But Jesus was not. Jesus was victorious. So trusting him in his victories is how it is made ours. That's how Satan becomes our defeated foe. We only are only let us hold fast to our faith. Let me pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, how awesome it is to look upon your son Jesus. And Jesus, how encouraging it is to behold all that you did and are doing for us. We're strengthened in our inner being by seeing the power of God on display. And we're encouraged that the means you've chosen, God, are very, very normal. Men and women and children trusting the word of God, drawing near to God through faith in Christ. Give us the wisdom and the strength to do that, not to try and overcome every trial and temptation in ourselves, but to fall back on trust and rest in the one who has done that for us. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.